Well, good morning, Life Pointers. It is my honor and privilege to get to speak with you and hang out with you today. The good thing you know when Pat isn't here is you're going to get out early. So that's the, the main perk to having me fill in, hopefully. Uh, but I am excited this morning to share with you something that's very close to my heart that I'm very passionate about. But before I do that, because I'm still new, just been on staff here since August, and because this is a family service where there's all kinds of babies saying hallelujah in their own way this morning, I wanted to introduce you to my family. So here's a picture that you'll see here of my wife and I. And we are in Vail, Colorado there. My wife is from Denver, and that's where we moved out here from. We are on top of a mountain there, about 11,000 feet. And uh, Colorado is beautiful, but we are so thankful and so blessed to be here in Middle Tennessee. And uh, we just love it here. And are so thankful to be a part of the Life Point team. This next picture, you'll see my kids. Um, I have two. Um, the oldest there is Miss Hannah Grace. Little curly red hair there, and then the little guy is Andrew Jeffrey. And Andrew is 15 months old. Hannah will be four here in a little over a week. And Hannah is actually a budding theologian. She and I were getting her ready for bed, reading some books, Llama Llama or something like that, nothing super spiritual. And Hannah, as I put it up, looks at me and she says, Daddy, when we die, how long does it take us to get to heaven to be with Jesus? I said, wow, I thought you were going to ask me like how to find a unicorn or something, but that's a really good question. So we talked about that a little bit, and we had, of course, been celebrating Jesus' birthday at Christmas. We made him a little birthday cake, and so she followed that question up by saying, Dad, I just can't wait to get to see Jesus open up all his birthday presents. So she's a sweetheart and loves the Lord. And my son, Andrew, has a gift of hospitality. He, in children's ministry, in the preschooler, everyone knows him. He waves at everyone, gives him a big smile. And in particular, he's already figured out how to flirt with girls. So I'm both pr proud of him and scared and terrified of his future uh, as a teenager. But uh, those are my kids, and uh, that's our family. And we're excited to be a part of the LifePoint uh, family. And so today uh, I was just thinking about um, over the last week or so as I thought about this message, just where our culture is leading us, where are things at today. And I think what's interesting about our time is we are now more connected than ever before. We have truly by pulling out our smartphone, we have access to unlimited information that mountain you saw that picture of there, on top of that mountain at 11,000 feet, I could have taken a phone call. I could have checked the score of the game or done about anything else I wanted, even on a mountaintop. Now, for some reason, when I pull into the parking lot here at LifePoint, I lose a call. But on a mountaintop, we are connected to the rest of the world. We can, through social media and other uh, apps and platforms, engage anyone and everyone all over the world. We can follow celebrities on things like Twitter, Instagram, it's really an interesting time. And we are overloaded with connectivity. And for some of us, it's hard to shut down sometimes and not look at our phones, not look at our screens. But what's interesting is while we're connected to so many people, what that has led our society toward is we have a lot of acquaintances, but very few deep friendships. And I would imagine as I say that, a lot of us are like, yeah, that's, that's me, that's true. Um, and so I want to start off this morning by asking a couple questions, and this isn't rhetorical, I actually would like you to raise your hand if this is true of you, because I just want to get a gauge of where we're at as a community and as a church. Who here in the last year has thought to themselves, 
you know, I'd like to make another friend or two. Who's thought, I'd like, to, I'd like to meet a neighbor, I'd like to meet someone else at church, right? We all kind of think, yeah, you know, even if you're an introvert, you're like, hey, it'd be great to have one more good friend, right? Especially if they have season tickets to the Titans or the Predators, it would be really great to get to know them. Um, but we all think those kind of things. Second question, we're going to go a little deeper here. How many of you in the last year or so has thought, I wish I had another friend that I could really count on in a time of need, someone to have my back, who wished they had someone else they could trust in their life. So as you look around, I mean, it's, it's almost a universal thing. We're wishing we had deeper friendships. We're wishing we had more friendships. And what's interesting is while we're more connected as a culture, we're also, statistics show, lonelier than ever before. Isn't that interesting? So we're connected to more people, but we're lonelier than ever before. Um, they did a study recently where they asked people, essentially, you know, like we just talked about, how many people do you have that you can trust or that you talk about important, sensitive matters with? And what they found is that 53.4% of people said outside of their family, they don't have any friends or confidants they'd really trust with sensitive information. Not only that, but they found out that 25% of people they interview so they don't have anyone, family or not, that they would trust with hard things. So I think that tells us a little bit about where our culture's headed. By the way, that was twice as many people that didn't have people they could count on than the last time they took that survey. So it's trending toward less deep friendships and less deep relationships. And then we have social media, which things like Instagram, Facebook, whichever one you're passionate about, it creates some challenges emotionally for a lot of people. I mean, you look through, scroll through these things and you see people's best moments, right? You see these beautiful vacations and when they get a new house or a new car and all these things, their best moments. And then internally, it's natural for people to be like, man, I want that or my life's a mess. And we forget that people aren't letting us in on their mess. They're just showing us the good stuff, right? But it causes people to be lonely, depressed, all kinds of things. They did this study specifically on Facebook. And they had a control group. And they said, hey, just, just view and do what you normally would on Facebook this week. And then they had another group. They said, you're going to take this week completely off of social media, no Facebook. And the group that did no Facebook for a week came back and said that they were happier, less lonely, and less depressed after just one week without Facebook. That's interesting, isn't it? makes you kind of think about, hmm, how should I approach technology? How should I approach social media? But I'm here to talk about something a little bit deeper than that with you today. I think those concepts have led certain psychologists, sociologists to coin this phrase. They said, America as a whole is alone together. It's an interesting combination of words, isn't it? But I would guess we've all experienced that. Who here has been with a group of friends or your family and you're all hanging out in the same room, but everyone's looking at their phone or watching a tablet or watching a TV screen, right? We've all been there where we're together, but yet we're not connecting. We're not talking. We're not taking advantage of the opportunity to have a meaningful interaction. And that's happening more and more. It's amazing to me when I look at a restaurant, my family generally we're not always great at it, but we try really hard, or at least at mealtimes, to put up our phones and our tablets and focus on one another. But there's so many times I'll look around a restaurant and be like, man, there's just couples out on a date and they're just both staring at their phones, waiting for their food to come. And that's the time that we live in. 
It's a very interesting challenge. They did this study on loneliness. And they didn't define loneliness, by the way, as like some hermit that doesn't know a soul. They define loneliness like the questions I asked, where if you were saying, I need more deep relationships, or I would like to have more friends in my life, that is lonely. So what they found is that loneliness isn't just a feeling or an emotional experience. Uh, former sermon gener- uh, surgeon general, Dr. Murthy, said this, loneliness causes an insidious type of stress that leads to chronic inflammation and an increased risk of heart disease, arthritis, and diabetes. The study goes on to say loneliness has the same effect on mortality as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Think about that for a second. Loneliness doesn't make us just feel sad. Loneliness has a physical toll on our body. It affects our heart. It affects things like diabetes and arthritis. But it was saying, if you're truly lonely, just wishing you had a deeper sense of connectedness to people in your life, then it is affecting your body similarly to if you smoked 15 cigarettes a day. That is crazy. And that's why this particular doctor has referred to loneliness as an epidemic for our culture. So I share that with you today, just to acknowledge people today are hungry, they're craving real, meaningful relationships, people that have their back. But for so many people, they don't know where to find that. And some people have even just given up looking because they've been burned so many times. So my question for us today is what can the church do to help? I believe that God created the church to be a solution to all kinds of problems in our lives. And especially one that's relational like this, there has to be something we can do. So what does that look like? How can we help? And my thought for you today is, well, this is a complex issue, right? We could blame it on technology, for instance. But I'm not here to criticize technology. I love technology. Technology has a way of just bringing out what's already within us. So if we're a workaholic, technology gives us an excuse to work more. If we struggle to connect with people, our phones give us an excuse not to focus on who is around us. We're not here to criticize technology or social media. I'm just here to acknowledge that there is something people are longing for relationally that they're not finding. And the church has an answer. And I believe that answer is what we call biblical community. And community is kind of a buzzword. It means a lot of different things. It can mean a town. But in this context, we're going to define it a little bit. What does that look like today? What does God long for us to have in that type of community? And specifically, it's just a place where people come together intentionally to learn, to grow together, to do life together. And that takes a lot of looks. It can be a life group. It can be a Sunday school class. It can be other classes we offer. It can be people spending time together organically. It can be a lot of different things. But as I researched all these things, I found one quote that I feel like hits the nail on the head of where people are at and why that is. And it's from this Christian psychologist named Dr. Larry Crabb. He's an amazing man of God. He lives in Colorado. Awesome guy. Here's what he says. Beneath all the problems we have, there are desperately hurting souls that must find the nourishment only community can provide or die. The problem beneath our struggles is a disconnected soul. There are a lot of disconnected souls today. And in this church, there's a lot of disconnected souls as well. At some time in our life, we've all been or maybe currently are a disconnected soul. And we need nourishment that God designed us to get in the form of community. 
So we're going to talk today about where does that start? Where, how do we know that God built community for us? And we're going to go on and talk about what are some distinctives of what that community should look like. So let's begin by going back to the very beginning, all the way back to Genesis. When humans were first created, we know Adam was the very first human being. God created the heavens and the earth and all these amazing animals. And then he made Adam. And there was a brief time period, we're not sure exactly how long, where it was just Adam before Eve was created. So I want to take just a second. I think it's fascinating to think about what did Adam do for his first few moments of life? And specifically, what did a world look like without women? It's an interesting thing to think about, right? Now, what I'm imagining is Adam looks around him and Every body of water is fully stocked with fish. There are so many deer and ducks and quail and whatever else you might love to hunt all over the place. There is no calendar that tells you you can't hunt this time of year. He could do whatever he wanted. Every day was hunting season. And I imagine that Adam had the most amazing fishing and hunting expeditions ever. It was incredible. And it was incredible because he and God were able to connect in such a deep way. Sin had not entered the world yet. They had a perfect relationship. That was awesome. And I imagine Adam is going around trying to create fun ways to do things. He didn't have a football back then. So he literally was probably taking a pigskin and tossing it around a little bit, right? And it was kind of gross. And he kind of wished that he had someone else to catch it or throw it back to him. I imagine that there was a point where even amidst a perfect, beautiful creation and a perfect relationship with God that he thought to himself, man, I wish I had someone like me to hang out with. I wish I had someone to help me figure out how to be a better fisherman or how to be a better hunter or just how to have more fun or how to goof off. I need a companion. I need a friend. And I think there's probably a fair assumption to say that Adam at some point got lonely. And that wasn't by chance. God knew that was coming. So let's zoom in real quick on Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and we'll see what God has to say about that. He said, the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So helper is an interesting term. Some people will translate it companion. But the root Hebrew word for this has some interesting nuances. It's used around 23 times throughout the Old Testament. It almost always has the same meaning. Some people in the past have misinterpreted it as something that means less than, in fear, like servant or assistant, does not mean that. It actually has a very powerful meaning. Listen to the connotation of what that term for helper means. It means supplying strength where something is lacking. Help that is vitally important and usually involve powerful acts of rescue and support. So God knew that Adam would be lacking something. He knew that he would have weaknesses just like any of us do. And so he created a helper that can provide strengths where Adam is weak, that, that he could learn from Eve and Eve could learn from him. And literally she was able to help rescue him from loneliness, rescue him from his need to connect with human beings. And that was truly something that God wired into our souls from the very first human being he ever made. And it wasn't by chance, if you think about God, he is such a relational God. He longs to be in a relationship with us. And God in himself is a triune God. Somehow he is three persons in one God. 
And so he has community even within himself. And so when he created man and humans in his own image, he made us to resemble him in his relational heart. And so when we look at our culture and say, wow, people are really lonely, it's not a surprise because we're missing the type of relationships that God designed us for. Because truly he designed us to need community. And there's all kinds of ways in our society we see people attempt community, but oftentimes they're, they're fake, they fall short, they're not quite what God intended. And I think there's a few reasons for that. I think first of all, our culture is pushing this idea of individualism, that you can do it. If you work hard enough, you can accomplish anything. You can achieve the American dream. You are amazing. You're so amazing that even if you're on a baseball field and right field picking flowers instead of playing, we're going to give you a, a participation trophy for showing up because you're awesome. And don't get me wrong. We need encouragement. We want to support one another. But we live in a culture where we're not told, hey, you're great, but you won't reach God's potential for you without leaning on others, without leaning on God. We are, whether we want to admit it or not, dependent upon one another. And so I think because we're so used to thinking, I can do it, I don't need anyone else, we don't want to let other people in to our weaknesses, to our flaws. So we just hide them. And so I think... The reason that everyone isn't connected in life-giving biblical community is because, first of all, we're sinful. We're messy. We are someone that has issues that's trying to hide. That sin can lead to selfishness. So when we enter relationships, we try to get out of it what we want. And that eventually leads to hurt and pain. Things don't always go the way that we planned and that we hoped. And last, we're prideful people, naturally, so many of us are. And so there's just something in us that doesn't want to let people in to realize we're not quite as together as we look on the outside. And that's truly because God designed us for community. And it's not just a design that we see in Genesis. What's amazing is this is one of those things where actually theology aligns with science. Neuroscientists have studied brains recently and found that our human brains under an MRI will actually light up when there's any kind of social interaction. That truly our brains are social, that they are designed for connection. And so science and theology tell us that we need each other, that we need social interaction, we need real relationships. So that being said, how do we find it? What does it look like? So there's two main ideas I want to talk about with you today, fairly in depth, that I think will help us to wrap our heads around, man, I've had good experiences and bad experiences. When you think about something like a life group, man, we've had a mixed bag. You know, we haven't always hit the nail on the head and how to do that as a church, as this church, as any church. And so there's a couple things I think we often miss that I want to share with you. So the first idea is this, that biblical community is diverse. So diversity is a term that we throw around a lot. It means a lot of different things, but let's dig in together to God's word and see what he has to say. So Colossians chapter 3, we're going to talk about verses 9 through 14, but I want to start just with 9 through 12. Here's what it says. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator 
Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is a beautiful passage. And this particular church is thought to be a small church in a pretty diverse metropolitan area. And the Apostle Paul is speaking to them about how to do community, how to do life together, what that looks like. And so verse 9 starts off, and I think it's beautiful what it says. It starts off by saying, hey, don't lie. Don't lie to one another. And I love that it does that because it shows us that there's something very human. When we go into a group of people, we try to make it look like we have it all together. We try to act like we're funnier than we are and we're cooler than we are and we're nicer than we are. And we put on a little bit of a show because we don't want people to see who we really are. And at the very beginning of this passage, we see this isn't a new problem. <laughs> this is an ancient problem, one that happened way back then. And the challenge here is God's challenging us to be ourselves, to be authentic, to not feel like we have to put on a show, but to just be real with people. It's what our souls are longing for, and we just have to get over our pride and give it a shot. So verse 10 goes on, and, it, and it's really cool how this is worded. This is talking about the old self, which represents our sinful nature, represents who we were before Christ. And then it talks about the new self, the new creation that we become when Christ enters our life. And we have the guidance of him and the Holy Spirit. Here it talks about how we're being renewed in knowledge after the image of a creator. And the idea is that we're still a work in progress. We're being renewed. We're, we're trying to lean into the potential that God has given us and who he made us to be. But that old self, our past sometimes rears its ugly head and it's not always pretty. It's kind of messy. And so this reminds us of that tension that we're trying to put off the old self, lean into who God made us to be, but, but we're still working on it. We're still a work in progress. I'm gonna skip verse 11 for a second and come back to it. Verse 12 then talks about kind of these qualities, these attributes that we want to strive to be like in community. So it's talking about things like kindness, compassion, humility. I mean, for me, those are the kind of people I want to do life with, right? People that really listen. I mean, compassionate people, they sit down with you and they look you in the eye. They're not checking their phone or their watch. They're listening and they are affirming and they're engaging you. And people that are kind and humble remind you that they're work in progress as well. And we need each other. And those are who we want to do life with. And it's a reminder to us that as we approach things like a life group or a great Sunday school class, those are the qualities we want to try to take on. To not be super critical or harsh but to be kind, loving, humble. But as we go back to verse 11, this is where I think this point really comes through. And there's something powerful here that I think a lot of us have missed as we've approached things like community, like a life group. If we look at verse 11, it compares different things. We have a Greek and a Jew. We have uncircumcised and circumcised. And of course, we know what a Greek and a Jew is. We're familiar with those cultures. I can't talk about the circumcision piece because of the family service. We're just going to move forward. But the idea is that there's different cultures, different dynamics going on amongst the people in this community. And then it gets to the part that may be unfamiliar to us, this idea of a barbarian or a Scythian. So what's a Scythian? That's something that probably very few people would know without the help 
of a little history lesson and a biblical commentary. But let me fill you in. A Scythian lived among, it was a people group, they lived among the northern coast of the Black Sea. And these were people that Greeks hated. They were thought to be violent, uneducated, uncivilized, inferior people. And so we know kind of what a barbarian is. We've heard about it. We've seen Conan, right? So we know a little bit maybe about what it can be. But a Scythian like made a barbarian look like the nicest person in the world. <laughs> they were intensely violent, very, very difficult people to deal with. And what this passage is saying is wherever you come from, regardless of your past, your story, your old self, you have room at the table of community. The God's biblical community that he designed us for welcomes everyone, loves everyone, encourages everyone. And so there's something powerful for us to be learned. What does that look like for us today? I don't know what a Scythian is in modern day culture. I mean, the closest I can think of is maybe like a radical terrorist. Uh, maybe a Scythian is a murderer. Whatever we think of is like the worst possible thing. That's what a Scythian is. And what's really crazy is to think the Apostle Paul, the person that God is utilizing to write this very book of the Bible in Colossians, was a terrorist. He was someone that was trying to kill and imprison Christians. And then God met him radically, transformed his life, and chose to make him one of the key leaders of the early church. That's pretty incredible to think about what God can do in the craziest person we can think of. And so in our lives, maybe a Scythian is your boss. Maybe it's your mother-in-law. Maybe it's a friend or a neighbor down the street. I'm not sure who it is. It's probably someone that rubs you the wrong way, that you have a hard time dealing with. But God's challenging us. Remember when you look at someone, if they know Christ, they are there to reflect the image of God. There is a piece of who God is that we can see in every Christian, no matter who they are and how crazy their backstory is. And the challenge, I think, for us is it's so common for us to show up at a group. We're going to a life group for the first time, and we see these people there, and we tend to size them up. Well, based on the fact that they said this or they're wearing this or they come from this place, here's what they're like. And we, it's so easy to judge people based on their external appearance, based on superficial things. But what God's challenging us to do in real biblical community is to see the potential that he's put in each person. To not focus on the external layers, how they're acting, but to focus on how we can learn something about God from them. To focus on what God is creating in them. Because God is like this artist that is molding each and every one of us into a masterpiece. And being in community gives us a front row seat to what he's doing in each person's lives. But that doesn't mean that it's not messy and hard along the way. So what I want to challenge us to really think about is what does diversity look like in our groups and our ways that we do community today? And diversity isn't just race. I think race is the first thing that comes to mind. That's important. I mean, I love that we are at a church where our senior pastor's family represents our passion for diversity, that we want people from every tongue and tribe and nation, like in Revelation 7, to be a part of this church, just like they're going to be a part of heaven. That is awesome. But it means more than that. It's more than just race. For some people, maybe your mind go to politics. People of all different political backgrounds are here. Maybe diversity in this sense actually just means different personality types. 
I'm a huge extrovert, and if someone's really introverted, we're going to think pretty differently. But the beautiful thing is when we encounter people that are different from us, we learn. I think it's common for people to go into a group and think, I just want to find people just like me. People that are fun, people that have similar life phase. And that's normal, and groups can have God do great things in them in those situations. But for me, when I think about when has God really moved in my life, it's usually through people that were very different from me. I mean, the best professors I ever had were people that thought differently, that came from different backgrounds, and I learned so much from them. And the people that I love to listen to are usually people that have totally different stories and experiences. And so if we seek out diverse community, it isn't always comfortable, but it allows us to learn and grow. So I want to encourage you, if you're in a group, if you're thinking about joining a group or some other form of community our church offers, I really want to challenge you, don't just look for people like you. Because it is powerful when we are in community of people that are totally different, that even annoy us and rub us the wrong way, because in that tension we learn and we grow. And groups aren't designed to give you 10 new best friends. We hope you make a good friend, and you likely will make a couple good friends in each group. But our groups are designed to give you a place to connect and run after God alongside of other people. And see how you can learn from how they walk with him. And see how you can encourage and inspire one another to serve our community and to invite our neighbors and other people into this amazing kind of community that they're longing for too. Biblical community is diverse. The second idea that I think we often miss is that biblical community requires two things, authenticity and perseverance. I think for a lot of us, One of the hardest things in the world to do is just to be real about our struggles, to let other people in on where we're stuck in our lives. I think we just naturally fear we're going to be judged. Maybe we're worried about the shame that we'll feel, other emotions that may come up. And that's totally understandable. Our whole culture struggles with that. And one person named Frank Warren created something to help people deal with that challenge How do we share our secrets, our wounds, our pain? And he creates something called post-secret. And the idea behind post-secret is really interesting. He just handed out these postcards. And on the postcard, it asked people, it's called a community art project. And he said, hey, decorate this, make this look artsy and represent you. But most importantly, use it to anonymously share something you've never told anyone before. And so he thought, hey, maybe I'll get a few of these back. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Well, he didn't get a few back. He got millions of these postcards to the point where literally there are conferences now where he will speak and show these amazing post secrets. People will get into groups and discuss them together. It is incredible what has come of this little social experiment because so many people just don't know how to share the hard stuff in their life. So I want to just take a second and share just four of these post-secret examples, and there's so many. Some of them are funny. This first one's a good example of that where people are just having fun. It says, I give decaf to customers who are rude to me. <laughs> if you've ever been in the service industry, you get this, right? It is like, yep, totally good. I mean, they could have done a lot worse, <laughs> right? Um, but that's just a silly one. The rest of the ones I want to share with you are more deep and significant. Let's look at the second one. I wish I had a person to talk to to calm me down. And tell me that it's going to be okay instead of sprinting to the medicine cabinet and taking a Xanax. I think a lot of us have felt like that. 
Like we talked about, a lot of us are wishing we had deeper friendships, relationships. And when we're longing for something that's missing, we turn to all kinds of places. And sometimes we medicate, so we feel numb instead of feel pain. And so a lot of us have struggled with something like this. And instead of turning to God, turning to the people that he's put in our lives to help us overcome those hard times, we turn to other things that leave us feeling empty. Here's another one that I think we can kind of relate to. I just feel so invisible and alone. We're a big church. There's a lot of people here. I would imagine that it's not uncommon at all for someone to feel this way, even at LifePoint. There's a lot of amazing, friendly people here, but it's a large church and it's easy to slip through the cracks. And especially in life, it's easy to just feel like no one really knows you. No one really notices you. You just kind of coast through life. And here's the last one. I think this last one is just very reflective of our culture. It says, I smile all the time so that nobody knows how sad and lonely I really am. And we're in the South. I think it's a common thing to come to church, to put on your Sunday best, to to have an argument on the way here. Your family's a mess. You're like, all right, guys, let's act like we have it together. Let's smile. Let's do church. And I think just because someone's smiley, jolly, friendly does not mean there's not some serious hard things going on in their lives, that they're feeling broken, wounded, pain. And so it's just a reminder of the world we live in, that just what someone looks like on the outside doesn't show us what they're feeling like on the inside. And so when we think about true biblical community, it's a chance for us to not have to send some anonymous postcard where there's no follow-through. Biblical community is a chance to be real, to be ourselves, to share where we're struggling, and to know that There's people there that love us, that care about us, that want to pray for us. And it is powerful when the people of God get together and pray over one another. And we have groups that can't wait to pray for you and whatever you're struggling with. And what's amazing is when you open up and when you share your struggle, you're scared that everyone else is going to be like, oh, man, you're a mess. But in reality, they're going to be like, hey, I'm jacked up too. I'm just like you. Let me tell you how. That happens more than not. But we just have to push ourselves to get past that initial fear. And when we do, God has a way of really showing up. Because when we're vulnerable, other people are vulnerable, it creates this incredible discussion where we remind ourselves, hey, we're all a work in progress. We all need God and we need each other. And that's a big part of why biblical community was designed by God for us. The sad thing is, that while that's God's intent for a group, it's not always how things play out. Sometimes people respond to us being real with judgment, with negativity. And I think probably everyone in this room at some point has been hurt by someone in a situation like that, whether it be in the church, out of the church. So I know it's natural for us to to not trust, to be fearful, but man, we are trying so hard, guys, to build spaces in this church that we call life groups and various classes and next steps where you can go and be yourself and be real and know that people are there because they care and they love you and those leaders are so excited to journey through whatever you're going through and help you find hope and help you find victory through Jesus. That's what we're trying to do. So I want to continue on in Colossians chapter 3. Let's look at these last two verses here. And this is beautiful because we're coming out of verse 12 where it was talking about these great qualities like kindness, compassion, humility we're trying to own as we lean into being in community together. And then the rest of this talks about the other side. When people are authentic, what happens? 
it gets a little weird, right? It gets a little awkward. It gets a little tense. And so let's look at what this looked like in this community. Verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Great passage here. And what it shows us, if they're bearing with one another, if they need to forgive one another, it shows us they're being real. They're being authentic. They're putting their junk out there. And there's times where they get angry at each other. They get frustrated. There's tension. But the beautiful thing is if we start by being authentic and we lean into that as a group by persevering through the tension and the hard stuff, that's where God really shows up. And so the key is doing both. If we're authentic, but people in the group are like, man, this just got awkward, I'm out. Hit the eject button. Then we're not growing. It's so easy in our society to just jump ship as soon as anything gets hard, especially with interpersonal relationships. But God designed us to dig in. God will never leave or forsake you. No matter what you do, he will love you. And that's how we're supposed to be with one another. We're supposed to lean in, dig in and say, how do we get through this together? In any great marriage, they have been through some crazy fights along the way. And it was hard in that moment, but they learned something about each other. It deepened their relationship and they had fun making up after it. That's what a good marriage does. It's not a marriage void of fighting. It's a marriage that learns from those fights and engages each other differently next time. And friendships are the same. The best friendships I've ever had. We had some of the dumbest fights along the way. And we went through hard things together. But because of that, our bond is deep. And that's what community is meant to be. We're meant to be with other people where we're real. That realness creates awkwardness or tension, but we persevere through it. And in that, God shows up, we learn, we grow, and we have a tighter bond as a result of it. I want to share a story with you that I think illustrates this idea really well. There was this ministry for young people. And these weren't your average young people. They had been through some really, really hard things. And so this ministry just helped them lean into what God made them to be and reflect his image. And it was really beautiful. And so they had this event where they invited their parents to come because many of them hadn't even let their parents in on what they were going through what God was doing in their life. So the parents came and basically one by one, each of these young people would stand up and share their struggle, their story, what God's doing. And so eventually this girl walks up and she was trembling. She was so scared, so nervous to say what she was about to say. And she walks up and she looks out in the audience. Her dad's there. And she says, for the last three years, I've been a prostitute. And she says this, tears are just streaming down her eyes and her words lock up. She can't literally even finish the story because she's so terrified of letting people in. And her dad sees this and he jumps out of his seat, walks up to her, embraces her in a huge hug. And he just looks at her and he says, honey, I don't see a prostitute in you. You have been washed clean. I just see my beautiful daughter. And she just looks at him and she says, I forgot the joy of just being your daughter. That is real community. That is how God wants us to relate to one another. Her dad could have gone so many different ways with what he said. He could have sat there and been embarrassed. 
But he rushed to her and loved her and shared with her in an intimate moment grace and God's love and reminded her of who she really is. And that's what we need to. And so if we can have the strength and the courage to just be real, to step up and just own our stuff and be real and then have the perseverance to come alongside of others and encourage them and love them and embrace them. It's amazing what God can do in community like that. So today I just want to ask you, where are you at with community? Are you in a group? Life groups are one of the best ways, I think, for us to practice this kind of biblical community. Are you in a, a Sunday school class or one of the next steps we offer in that brochure? If you're in one, maybe you're like, hey, like I'm in a group, but it's not really like that. We have amazing groups throughout this church at every campus, but we want you to help lean into how do we make this group more diverse? How do we make this group more authentic and persevere through the hard stuff? How do we help this group to live sin, really lean into the mission that God has given us? For some of you, you're like, man, I, I'm not in anything. I come to church. And it's a struggle to do that. And I just want to share with you this morning, I don't share this message as a minister that doesn't get it. I share this as someone, I mean, I can honestly tell you that my most significant growth in life change happened as a result of an amazing small group. But I can also tell you that in the context of Christian community, I have literally had my heart ripped out of my chest and stomped on, and I have shed tears over pain that was caused by people being judgmental, misunderstanding things. And so I know the pain that poor practice of community can cause. And so I just wanna wrap up today by just encouraging you if that's where you're at, hang in there. Give community a chance. Because at LifePoint, our heart is to build the kind of community we've been talking about today. We want groups that welcome anyone and everyone that walks through the door of LifePoint. We recognize that it's going to be messy because we're all work in progress. And this is our vision, this is our heart, but we don't always get it right. And so if you see a group that's getting off track, man, let's work together to, to remind people that we have to bind this tension and this awkwardness together with love. We have to persevere through the hard stuff together. And that we need God every step of the way. So I want to really encourage you as you think about 2019, what if we really dove deep into God's best for us? One last little word of advice. As you approach things like a group, try to experience God in the midst of community. One thing that we have to do is just acknowledge that biblical community requires sacrifice. It requires us to acknowledge that it's not just about us, it's about the group. It's about what God's doing, his mission. It's about learning from other people. And if we show up to a group thinking we're just going to get our needs met, then somewhere along the way we're going to get disappointed. But if we show up to a group saying, God, what are you trying to teach me here? Even if it's hard, even if it's confusing, then it's going to be really cool to see what he does. So that's my hope for us is let's lean into 2019 to what God's doing through community. Let's lead it. Let's build it. Let's create spaces that aren't existing for our neighbors and our friends and our family. And let's encourage one another, inspire one another toward doing it the way God designed, because he designed us for community. And our world is hungry for it. Let's help them find it together.
Let's pray. God, I thank you so much, Lord, that you designed us for friendship, God. You designed us to need to be in a relationship with you, Lord. You designed us to need to build deep, meaningful friendships. And Lord, my heart this morning goes out to people that have tried to find that and it just hasn't worked out. So God, I just pray for anyone right now that when they think of a small group, when they think of community, there's some baggage, there's some hurt, there's some pain. God, can this morning as we worship you, can we just be real with ourselves about what's going on in our hearts? Can we lay that at your feet, Jesus? Because we know that you long for us to bring our pain to you. Because you of all people know what pain is like. Because you bore one of the most painful deaths ever known to man for us. For the sins of those people that hurt us. God, can you give us the courage and the strength to try again, to give it another chance. And Lord, for those of us that are in a group right now or in some kind of community, God, can you inspire us to lean into what you designed community to be, to seek more diversity, to seek more authenticity, to persevere through the hard stuff. And wherever we're at, God, can you help us to just figure out how you can lead through us, Lord, how we can help serve a group, how we can help serve our community. God, nudge us towards the best next step that you have for each one of us. And in the midst of all of that, God, we just ask you to show up in ways we never expected. We pray these things in Jesus' name.